So tonight's talk is on the Four Noble Truths. I know some of you have heard me speak before about the process that I go through in writing a talk and how it's um, a way of turning my mind towards these teachings. And it's a process that I find incredibly rich, valuable. You never know what might be seen in a new light. I'll spend time reading through books, um, just sitting with what the subject matter is. And (laughs) we have a little squirrel in the closet there. Um, Just exploring it. And it's always, at some point, it'll really start to come alive for me in some way. And as I was working on this talk, in looking at these four noble truths, I was just getting waves, especially this afternoon, just wave after wave of deep appreciation for the Dhamma, the teachings of the Dhamma, and just immeasurable gratitude uh, to the Buddha for bringing these teachings into the world. I also... Um, this time, got in touch with something that I hadn't, hadn't really contemplated before, that you know, I've, I've known in my own experience to really deeply understand the Four Noble Truths, of which I'll get to in a minute. But um, the, the understanding of these, it, it can be quite difficult, not easy to see at times, and hard to work with at times. And I just realized that he had done such an amazing thing in, you know, having this capacity to point out to people things that they probably really didn't want to see. You know, that we like to believe that we are somewhat happy in our lives and don't want to um, dwell or look at where we might not be happy. You know, we keep having this fabricated form of happiness that, you know, really just keeps us going round and round in circles. And it doesn't bring us any lasting happiness, but somewhere we almost get content within that. And, you know, he was saying, wait, stop, there is another way. And he also had to uh, look at a way in which he could take us from a very fabricated experiential way of living on a ve- with a very conditioned sense of happiness into an unfabricated happiness. You know, and it was having to, yeah, p- people having to have enough faith and trust in what he was saying to take that leap of faith, to follow what he was saying, to apply what he was saying to be able to realize something that couldn't be spoken of, something that couldn't be, uh, that, you know, isn't on the relative conditioned level in the same way. And, you know, just in putting this talk together, I realized, whoa, (laughs) that's quite a journey, quite an undertaking. It's said that these Four Noble Truths were what the Buddha came to realize as he sat under the Bodhi tree. It's what he came to understand in his own mind. 
And then once having understood this, it was said that he surveyed the world to see who in the world might have little dust in their eyes and be able to realize the end of suffering in the way that he had. It said that as he surveyed the world, who he first saw were five ascetic monks whom he had practiced with uh, earlier in his life. And he began a journey to go and be with them, to share these teachings with them. And when he did so, when he gave these teachings on the Four Noble Truths, it is really said to be a great time where he set in motion the wheel of Dhamma in our time. You know, that it's been from those teachings that the practice that we do here has come to us. It was said to be quite an event. And one of the monks that he was speaking to was actually, who actually acquired the pure Dhamma eye as he spoke these teachings. And this said to him, it was possible for other beings to realize these same truths, the same understanding. It gave him the confidence to continue on. It's also said that the devas, in hearing of these teachings being spoken, uh, the wheel of Dhamma being set in motion, carried the news off into all corners of the cosmos, and that the earth was said to quake, and that there was a dazzling light. So it was a memorable moment in the Buddhist world. So these four noble truths, probably most of us are very familiar with them because they are teachings that we hear over and over again. And that doesn't matter. You know, they, I've always found doesn't matter who's talking about them, what they're saying about them, there is just such a delight in hearing them because they are very practical teachings, very down-to-earth teachings. The first noble truth, the truth of suffering, that there is suffering. The second noble truth, There is a cause of this suffering, and that is craving. The third noble truth, there can be an end to suffering, a cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the way to the end of suffering, which is the noble eightfold path. So these teachings on the Four Noble Truths are very practical in their application. You know, whether we are very new to practice or whether we have been practicing for years and years, we will find them applicable. 
we will find them as a way in which we can investigate our experience. We will find that they keep deepening in their meaning. They're very practical on one level, and yet they can lead to the deepest wisdom. They're called noble truths because they were discovered by a noble one and realized by a noble one. And a noble one is one who has no dust over their eyes, fully awakened. Also, through the course of time, there are many different types of beings that have become noble ones. Householders, children, prostitutes, murderers, thieves. I think it's really important to remember this because so often we can have a sense that the complete freedom is not possible for us. Maybe we remember things we've done in our life and think, you know, it's just we've been too bad. There's too much of a burden there. We can't shake it off. And yet people who have had very, very difficult lives, done really harmful things, have managed to awaken. And in doing so, it may be, it would have been that they didn't continue to cause harm and suffering. But through their realization, through deep understanding, understood, saw the way to live that didn't perpetuate that suffering. The Buddha didn't ask us to accept or reject these Four Noble Truths, but he invited us to inquire, to investigate, to see for ourselves, is this really true? This is the invitation he always gave. Come and see. Come and see for ourselves. So the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. There is suffering. We can hear this, and if we don't rightly understand it, we can get the pessimistic view that Buddhism seems to have become famous for. But it's not, uh, it's not really what these teachings are about. You know, the Buddha didn't say, all life is suffering. He said, there is suffering, there is a cause to it, and there is a way out of it. The last two noble truths are really about the joy and happiness that comes from both being on the path and realizing the end of suffering. So it's not a pessimistic statement at all. I know when I first started coming to Buddhist retreats and I was hearing a lot in the talks about suffering. I remember coming home from my first retreat and saying, Buddhists Buddhists should have a thing about suffering. And, you know, I was kind of glossing over it. I wasn't really taking it to heart. And then, you know, go back to another retreat and I'd hear more about suffering. 
I think, oh yeah, here they go again. Um, And then one day in sitting, I realized that the suffering that was being spoken about was the suffering I was experiencing just in sitting, just in being with this untrained mind that was unruly, jumping all over the place, or being with really volatile states of mind that come up from time to time. Or it was really about just the knee pain that I was experiencing and my inability to be present to it, my not opening to the experience. So in the Buddha saying, there is suffering, what would he have been pointing to? You know, if it's not a pessimistic statement, but a real, realistic statement. He was simply saying that in this whole process of being born, aging, dying, it's not easy. There is really difficult terrain that we have to navigate. There are great challenges that we will face as a human being. We find that the conditions of life are very uncertain, always changing. And it's like we're always trying to build a house, a stable environment, and we're building it on shifting sand. It's not easy. We feel vulnerable. Sometimes we feel quite lost in this process. We find that, you know, we can build this house, and just like houses have recently been built in California, some houses and mudslides happen. You know, that things are always changing. It's not reliable. And this, if we pay attention to it, can leave us with a strong feeling of unsatisfactoriness. We find that in the world of experience, there is no lasting happiness. It's all conditioned. And therefore, whatever is born will one day cease to be. And even the best experiences are going to be impermanent, are going to change. And so there's just a level of unsatisfactoriness with this, with this process, where we feel so vulnerable. And it doesn't matter whether we're rich, royalty, you know, the queen in England, has she experienced suffering? Judging by the media, one would think she has greatly experienced suffering. Probably easier to see that the poor experience suffering. Even at times when we're really healthy, 
there can be levels of suffering. That we just come across this sense of stress in our lives just from living on, living in this world of shifting sand. And the suffering that we experience through this is not personal. It's not a personal failing every time things shift, become unpleasant, aren't the way we want them to be. It's just the way of life. When we can see that this suffering is universal, it really helps us to have the capacity to open to it. When we see someone else in pain, it's become, you know, at times it's really easy for our hearts to open. And this can also be true for ourselves. When we really see, can acknowledge, be honest about the suffering in our lives, we don't take it so personally. We can have kindness, care. We can see this is suffering. You know, I'd say, just in your practice, the next time you find yourself in a real state of torment, if you just look at it and say, this is suffering, not this is my suffering, because once we put my in there, it's a form of identification. But if we can just know it as suffering, look and see what happens. In talking about uh, suffering, I want to go back to the word dukkha. This is the word the Buddha used in Pali. And it often is translated as suffering, and probably many of you are already quite familiar with, but this is not a great translation. Because, uh, you know, we often think of suffering as when we're in intense distress. or, you know, whether it be physical or mental, but uh, dukkha goes beyond this, well beyond this, because it is about, you know, this, uh, this truth of impermanence, things constantly shifting, there being no lasting happiness that can be found. Um, so just to remember, when I'm speaking about suffering, that it is broader than just the blatant suffering that we realize in our lives, that we see. So a part of it is to be looking at our experience close enough to recognize where, it is, where there is stress or distress where there is this unsatisfactoriness. Probably unsatisfactoriness is the best translation of the word dukkha, but uh, it isn't a common word that we use in 
our English language, and in fact, my dictionary on the computer never has it. So, um, you know, it's really not common. So it it isn't doesn't always work to just translate it as that. But it is just this. You know, it can be a, a really subtle sense of things being unsatisfactory. So we won't be noticing it at times, many times in our lives, when things are going really well. You know, we think that, we might think that there is no suffering there. But, you know, when things are going well, really look, see, you know, in our lives, is there any subtle fear that we have to protect what we have? You know, maybe we've got a good job, family life is good, we want to protect that. We want to hang on to it in some way so that our happiness feels more sustained. In our practice, at times when things are going good, um, you know, things are going smoothly, just really look and see if there is any sense of this distress. Whether we are, you know, trying to protect ourselves in some way um, through bringing in just a little bit of a freezing, a rigidity, trying to block out sounds that might shatter our concentration. Um, you know, just where we're tightening up instead of relaxing into what's happening. Or sometimes the um, dissatisfaction that we feel will come around the contraction of self. You know, we're sitting and it's really peaceful and beautiful, and I am so happy. I am so peaceful. And it might just be experienced as this tiny contraction that is trying to own our experience. So we really need to look carefully, examine, uh, at times to see this distress. But these pleasant experiences do become unsatisfactory, even if in the experiencing them there may be a temporary joy, temporary happiness, but they will one day end. We can also get in touch with this sense of suffering through paying attention to the relentlessness of experience. This is something that actually becomes quite knowable on retreat, that it doesn't matter whether our experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that it's continually arising and passing away. And when the practice feels really good, easeful, you know, middle of the day, who knows, beginning of the day, towards the end, it varies for people can uh, be quite brilliant, easeful. And then just notice when you go to bed tonight, are you still really happy opening to each arising experience? Or does there come a point, which I know I've often experienced in my own practice, where when I get into bed at night, it's like I want to pull the covers over, over my head and turn out the lights. You know, I just want to be asleep. It's enough. And this relentlessness we experience in our daily lives, just in the ongoing care 
we need to give to this body-mind. You know, getting up in the morning, having to take care of ourselves, feed the body, um, tend to all of the things we need to upon arising, you know, having jobs, going off to work, to feed and clothe ourselves. And we have to do it day after day after day. On retreats, this is also evident. I've been amazed the number of times I've done a retreat and the day feels so busy. And it's just with the simplest things. And laundry day just becomes huge. It's so complicated. How do we fit it in? You know, it's the yogi job. It, it gets so stressful at times. And, you know, here we have a really simplified life. And yet we can just see there's no end to what we need to do. When we don't accept this truth of suffering, that there is this level of unsatisfactoriness, we can develop really unhealthy habits of navigating that which is unpleasant in our lives. You know, commonly, we deny suffering. And our culture is really good at this. It gives us <laughs> some tough conditioning to work with. You know, there's the myth of the all-American dream, all-American family, and that family doesn't suffer. You know, it's just a, a joyful celebration of life of which we have everything we need. And it's not, isn't what happens often, and it's not very maintainable. And so, you know, we can have strong habits of denial. We come to our practice, we might find we still have these same habits of denial, not wanting to see. Now, I, I remember times sitting maybe a thought of anger arises really strong in the mind, and then I, it's kind of as if I say, oh, I didn't see that. You know, I pretend I don't see. You know, and it's just a habit of denial. In our lives, these habits of denial can be quite visible as we watch ourselves walk down uh, a busy street in the city and we see someone who is really caught in suffering. Now, it will probably depend on what's happening in that moment of suffering. You know, if it was a small child who had hurt themselves, we might be uh, walk up to them with open arms and try to help them. But if it was a really angry, violent person that was struggling, we might turn away, not try not to see it. You know, if it's somebody who's got a severe disability, how many times have we looked away? You know, so looking to see, do we have habits of denial? Trying to deny the truth of suffering. Another strategy that we often use is that of trying to manipulate our experience so that we don't experience that which is unpleasant. It's tiring, very tiring. Sometimes we experience it when we come and sit down uh, 
in the meditation hall, and we try to get everything just right. You know, we try to get the cushion or the stool just right. Uh, We might put padding under certain parts of the body that we don't want to feel discomfort in. When we, you know, take great care with the clothing that we put in, our, our, our socks, our sweaters, our shawl, you know, we want to get the temperature just right. We're trying to manipulate our experience so we just aren't exposed to unpleasant experience. But it really changes when we bring in honesty, when we can just look and see this is suffering, this is distress, this is unsatisfactory. It's the voice of honesty. In these moments, not personalizing it, but this is just what is so. The Buddha said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with what one dislikes is dukkha. Separation from what one loves is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. When we look at what the Buddha is pointing to as being dukkha, we find that it includes the most dynamic forces of dukkha, where it's really visible suffering, and we find it goes right through to the most subtle levels of clinging to our experience, of identifying with our experience that arises through um, clinging to experiences of of the body, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. So there's a whole huge arena in which we can come to understand this unsatisfactory nature of experience. We often take this suffering to be the absolute truth, to be the sum total of who we are. We experience this at times in our practice when it's really painful and we think this is the way it's always going to be. Um, or when we you know, have these strong feelings of solidity around maybe anger, patterns of anger. I am such an angry person. We start to believe it's an absolute truth, but it's really only a relative truth. And because it's a relative truth, this means that uh, there can be freedom from it. So when we really understand the, the first noble truth, there is suffering. 
this is when we no longer personalize it. And the Buddha said, suffering must be understood. So with this noble truth, we find a shift in ourselves happening from you know, wanting to get rid of everything that is unpleasant, distressful, to wanting to understand it. It's a huge shift in our lives when we take this stance, when instead of trying to deny, suppress, or manipulate our experience so we don't experience suffering, we turn and we face it. So this movement of mind will take us into the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering being craving. And the Buddha talked about there being three types of craving. Craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, and craving for extinction or non-existence. So taking a look at these three types of desire. Desire for sense pleasure. This is probably very familiar to all of us because, uh, you know, in our lives we tend to love beautiful things, pleasant sounds, smells, sights, uh, that there's a lot of enchantment with the world of sense desire. This enchantment actually keeps us in bondage, keeps us in debt, and it <sighs> keeps us in suffering when we're not aware of it. You know, when we're caught up in desire for sense pleasure, we're chasing after desires, and we're not feeling the scorch, the heat of desire. We're not feeling we're not in touch with the place of unsatisfactoriness from which the desire arises. We're caught up in this enchantment. Winnie the Pooh has a great line that he had some understanding of this enchantment that we experience. And this was in relation to eating honey. He talked about how um, in eating honey, there is a moment before you eat it that is even better than when you actually do. And I I don't know, it just captures to me this whole um, enchantment that we feel through sensual desires. And it, it holds so much promise. And we get fooled by it over and over and over again. You know, from thinking food. I don't know, we can get so caught up in food and how wonderful it is. And you know, how long does that satisfaction from a mouthful of tantalizing food last? It is so momentary. Yet, every time we sit, not every time, but many times when we sit down to a meal, we're captivated by the enchantment.
In saying this, it's not to say that pleasant experience is bad. That wasn't the Buddha's teaching. But this is where we get caught in delight, attachment. The, the craving, the thirst comes in. And this is where we will suffer. Um, I'd like to share something from Robert Burns. He says, pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, it blooms, is shed. Its bloom is shed. Or, the, or like the snowfall on the river, a moment white, then melts forever. And this is the world of sense pleasures. You know, they're, they're there one minute and gone the next. And the Buddha actually said, I do not see any other single fetter bound by which beings for a long, long time wander and hurry through the round of existence like this fetter of craving. Bound by this fetter of craving, beings do wander and hurry through the round of existence. You know, this, this thirst, this desire for sense pleasures that is never going to bring lasting happiness. In our practice, we still can bring this pursuit of sense pleasures where we get caught in wanting to be on the top of the mountain all of the time. Might be that we get addicted to intensity, wanting some strong experience so that we'll feel awake, alert, craving in our practice. Sometimes desires don't seem such a big deal. You know, they can seem little and have not much consequences. But if they're left unchecked, they can lead to us acting in really unskillful ways, where, you know, in the world of desire, when we're caught in it, we're caught in the world of I, me, and mine, and what I want. And that becomes at the exclusion of the rest of the world. The mind's really tight, constricted, not open and available. The second form of desire, desire for becoming or continued existence. In this form of desire, we can get caught in identification with our experience. We become our experience. Each moment of experience becomes the birthplace of I, whether, you know, it's wonderful states, whether it's difficult states, but there's the clinging to, we become the experience. And we can get caught in the world of doing, in this becoming. Um, We keep wanting to exist, so we do and we do and we do. We define our lives by our doing. We keep becoming. In our practice, can be the practice of doing the practice. We sit down and I'm going to do meditation. I'm going to do the breath. 
You know, that there's really a sense of self in it. This sense of I am doing, I am becoming. Our culture, again, doesn't help us because, you know, it's like from the time we are little, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to become? And we're always looking to become something better. And again, we do it in our practice. We come to become enlightened, to uh, be a better person, to become more peaceful. And it's all self-referencing and a way of enhancing the ego in this becoming. We want to enhance our own self-image. And the third form of desire is the desire not to be. And this can arise when we feel overwhelmed by the futility, the, the weariness of chasing after empty experiences and not having this quality of wisdom to know that this is just empty experiences. Uh, this f- desire not to be in some very strong forms can lead to alcoholism, drug addiction, even suicide. It's what we don't want to be, want to get rid of experience. We experience it in our practice when we want to get rid of anger, when we want to get rid of knee pain. We want to annihilate our experience. So these three forms of craving, of desire for sense pleasure, desire for becoming, and desire for annihilation or extinction, we probably experience all of these, you know, in, at different times throughout the day. Um, and this, every time that these desires arise, it's not to judge ourselves, but to look deeply so that we can come to understand them. And when we really come to understand them, We see the heat, the pain, the suffering that is present when we identify with them. We see how much it hurts. And then letting go happens naturally. And the Buddha said about craving that it is to be abandoned, is to be let go of. There's actually a, a, a simple reflection that I have used in my own practice at times to see if there is craving that is present that is not being seen. I will periodically drop in the phrase, this is it. And so as I drop in that phrase, at times it may be that there's not a ripple in the water. This is it. Perfectly fine. 
At other times, it might appear more like a question. This is it? And at times, it might be that it reflects an unacceptability. This can't be it. You know, and so just paying attention to this element of craving that so often arises. If the Buddha had stopped with these first two noble truths, we'd be in trouble. You know, life would be grim. It would be a pessimistic teaching. And I really realized this one time when I was studying the four noble truths and was going through them truth by truth. And this was over a period of a month. Uh, so, you know, after the first week, the truth of suffering, the second week, the cause of suffering, everything I looked at, that's what I was seeing in the world was becoming very bleak. And then I hit the third noble truth, and there was just such relief. Um, And and this is the great joy of the Buddhist teachings. There is a way out of this suffering. There is an end to it. So, this end of suffering release from suffering, from this unsatisfactoriness, from getting caught in reaction to the world, to life's experiences. We often hear uh, the end of suffering spoken of as nibbana. In the suttas, nibbana, uh, some descriptions of it, the unborn, the unmade, the unoriginated, unformed, or unconditioned, the deathless. It's also spoken of as being the highest peace, incomparable safety, and the highest wisdom. We find that in the teachings that often there's more said about the path to Nibbana than Nibbana itself. And I think that's probably because we can get caught in our conceptual ideas of what the end of suffering is, of what Nibbana is. And we start to settle for those conceptual ideas rather than realizing Nibbana for ourselves. That uh, we can, some of these ideas will not be helpful. And in my own practice, I've I've seen many, many times of having to peel away these ideas that I do have. But there is ways before complete liberation happens that we can uh, recognize moments when we're not caught in suffering. Moments when there may be a letting go. This can be, you know, sitting and being caught in a state of anger, being very tormented. And then through clear seeing, through seeing that, you know, this is just anger, it's impermanent in its very nature, and it's not personal, not identifying with it, there can be a release 
a letting go. And in those moments, there can be a great cooling of the mind. We can even experience it just in a moment where there's been a thought, awareness of the thinking, and the thought ends. Paying attention in these little moments, we get a taste of the mind that is not grasping. It, and, you know, I think there can be many moments in our day that we tend to gloss over, not pay attention to. Many yogis, when they first start paying attention to thoughts and see that it disappears, think that they've done something wrong. But keep steady in that moment. Feel that cooling that happens in the mind when there's no identification with the experience. So it's looking for times when we aren't caught in the I, me, and mine of life. We're not caught in grasping at experience or aversive to experience. can be very simple moments of generosity, you know, where we just freely offer to something to somebody, and it's not self-referencing. We might feel the coolness of the ease at heart, or the ease of heart at that moment. We can feel it, experience it in moments of renunciation, where we aren't run by greed, we aren't grasping, and there's just a natural letting go that happens. We also find when the seven factors of enlightenment are strong, in balance, you know, where there's strong mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. All these factors are strengthened through our practice. And we can find that there's an ease. We're not being pulled or pushed by experience. Mindfulness itself brings a coolness where we're not in reaction. We find, if we pay attention to these, you know, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, and, you know, these moments of experiencing a form of cessation of suffering, there comes a point where the mind naturally opens to the unconditioned, to the unfabricated. And then the Buddha clearly laid out the path through which this becomes possible. And this is the fourth noble truth. And this fourth noble truth um, the, 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 the Noble Eightfold Path can really be broken down into three trainings that we can undertake in our lives. The training of sila, of living an ethical life, living a life where we take into account how uh, what we do and say, how we live, has consequences. And we live in a way of non-harming, non-harming to ourselves and others. 
the um, we also work with samadhi or bhavana the development of the mind where we work directly with mindfulness concentration effort we train the mind we um, help it to gain strength in being able to bring the mind to our experience to be able to see these noble truths for ourselves and out of this we find the next training of the mind that of panya or wisdom where we realize these four noble truths for ourselves we understand the law of karma that we have a deep intuitive understanding of life that brings a complete release to the heart. I remember doing an intensive uh, retreat with Chamye Sayadaw or Sayadaw Ujanaka, who's been one of my teachers. And he always loved to point out how anytime we are on retreat and doing something such as walking, that we are cultivating all of the Noble Eightfold Path, that we're working with sila, we're working with bhavana, the training of the mind, and we're also working with wisdom. And so this is his description. And this is talking about walking. When the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, we have to make mental effort that is right effort. Because of that mental effort, we can be mindful of the movement that is right mindfulness. And when the mind is focused on the movement of the foot, it is concentrated on it for a moment. For that moment, the concentration becomes constant and continuous, stronger and deeper, and that concentration is right concentration. The mental state which leads the mind to the object of meditation is right thought. In this way, the mind becomes well concentrated on the object of meditation, the movement of the foot. Then it penetrates into the true nature of the physical process of the movement, knowing it as a natural process. That knowing or understanding of it as a natural process is right understanding. And while we are engaged in our mindfulness meditation, we abstain from wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. This means that we also are including the three factors included with sila, right speech, action, and livelihood. Any moment we are mindful of any mental or physical process, we are developing the noble eightfold path. And when we develop the eightfold path, we remove false view by the power of right understanding and can enter stream entry, which is the first stage of enlightenment. So these four noble truths, these are what we are to inquire into, investigate, to come to understand for ourselves because they are the prescription for freedom for the unbinding of the heart. The Buddha said of the Four Noble Truths that the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, 
is to be investigated. The second noble truth, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. The third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is to be realized. And the fourth noble truth, the path that we can walk upon, the noble eightfold path, is to be cultivated. And this really holds within it the Buddhist teachings. This is what he spoke about over and over again. The Buddha encouraged his disciples not to be discouraged, but to instead cultivate joy. And we find joy in our practice when we experience the benefits of practice. We become joyful to be on the journey, not daunted by difficulties, not daunted when suffering arises, because we know what we have to do. We know that we have to come to be able to understand the truth of suffering. We know we have to learn to abandon, to let go, relinquish. And this will lead us into the freedom of the heart. I'd like to close with a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa, a Thai forest monk. This is from his book, Heartward of the Bodhi Tree. If you think that the effort we have talked about is good and true endeavor, then take it up. Renounce that which is cheap and poor in order to acquire that which is more valuable, most excellent. Keep up the work. Don't let it fail. Make it develop and progress so as to benefit both yourself and all of humanity. And then you can feel sure that in this life, you have done the best thing that a human being can do and have received the best thing a human being can receive. There is nothing beyond this. That is all there is. So these teachings of the Four Noble Truths, when we take them to heart, it helps us to realize the full potential of being a human being. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to realize the Four Noble Truths leading to the end of suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.